Good morning, everyone. Sure is good to see everyone this morning. Uh, before we jump into God's word, I would love to pray together. So would you join me in prayer? Let's go before the Lord. Father, we're assembled here. We've just been led so beautifully in worship to express our hearts to you, to let you know how great we believe you are and how thankful we are for who you are in our lives. And Lord, with our hearts now open before you, we just want to make some requests known. We want you to know, Lord, how much our hearts ache over the pain in our world. Um, we could pray about this every Sunday, every day, honestly, this uh, grief that this world is facing. Lord, you see at this very moment, uh, every person, uh, those who are, are grieving losses, those who are dealing with um, grievous things that, that break their heart, Lord, our heart breaks with them, and we know yours does too. As we look at the news and we think about uh, your words, Lord Jesus, that when there are wars and when there's news and rumors of wars, you let us know, Jesus, that what we're supposed to do in moments like that is to look to you, to be reminded that even as we're uh, in a season that celebrates your arrival, your first coming to earth, that those things will prompt us to remember that one day you'll come back to earth. There'll be a second arrival, a second coming, and that you've promised, Lord, in, in moments like that, in that, in that moment, that justice will flow across this earth, that compassion and love will win the day. So, Lord, help us to, to be reminded of that. Help us to live into that as we see all the hurt and the pain and the violence of our world. We think of those words from the angels, peace on earth and goodwill to all people. Let that, Lord, begin with us. As we open your word today, Lord, speak to us. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks a lot for praying with me. Well, it's hard to believe, but here we are, right? December. It's Christmas time. And when we reflect, this is a time of year when we reflect on the deepest wonders of our faith. Christmas brings us face to face with the incarnation, God arriving and living in flesh and blood, and yes, even taking our humanity on as a newborn baby. This means Jesus entered earth and time, just as we each did, with parents, in this case one biological and one adoptive, and their parents and their parents, he had descendants, that Jesus had a family and a family tree. And that's what we're spending this month focusing on, what we're calling the Christmas family tree. And many, many thanks uh, to uh, the family, uh, the Howards and the Fosnots who shared with us some scripture and got us started on our Christmas family tree this December. Now, this lineage that we are talking about, Jesus' family tree, his descendants, that's made clear to us in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew opens his story of Jesus with a genealogy. And he begins like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew writes that this genealogy uh, will, uh, he makes it clear that Jesus is uh, related to and grounded in the story of Israel. Abraham, later King David, as the Messiah must be, was prophesied to be. It goes on to say that Abraham's the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And we're meeting all kinds of folks as you move through this genealogy. They do heroic things. They do some boneheaded things. 
And they even do some pretty terrible things at times. And in what we'll see this morning, they do some ordinary, faithful things as well. And that takes us to the line in the genealogy that we're going to focus on this morning. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth's story is a beautiful one and one we're going to spend the rest of our time together in. Now, you won't arrive if you're doing the tree here. You won't arrive to Ruth until day 12. Uh, and it's represented by an icon that looks like a, of a bundle of wheat. But uh, consider this a preview because Ruth's story, the beauty and the meaning of it is such we just can't miss it. We want to take a deep dive into it. It's a story of what I would call ordinary faithfulness, reminding us that God uses ordinary people. When we look at this genealogy, this Christmas family tree, uh, you know what? If it weren't true, we could hardly believe it. Especially hard to believe is that God would use the people that he used, that he would include the people that he included. But he did. And he does. And that is good news for us. So let's dive in to the story of Ruth. The book of Ruth, tucked into the Old Testament there, opens a book is named after her. Her name is Ruth. It opens by letting us know that its events took place uh, during the days when the judges ruled in Israel. Now, that's a time that's summed up in the final verse of the book of Judges, just preceding Ruth, with these words. Everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That was the way this time was described. And then we move to this story of Ruth. Now, that sounds incredibly modern, doesn't it? Everyone making it up as they go along, deciding what truth is, doing what's right in their own eyes. If it's right for me, it's right, regardless of what any Thing, uh, any God, any word of God, any overall truth might want to say. You might remember a few years ago, post-truth was even Oxford Dictionary's word of the year, making the observation that we live in an age in which everyone gets to make up their own truth, it seems. Another author I read talks about the idea that what matters now in the age that we're currently living in, living in is not truth, but truthiness. It's kind of true. It's true for me. It's close enough. It's my truth, and my truth can be mine, and yours can be yours. And that leaves out the idea that there is a God in heaven, right, who made and knows and loves each of us, and that maybe he has something to say about what's true. And maybe he knows better than we do. This age that Ruth, the book of Ruth is set in, sounds a lot like ours. Everyone's just doing whatever seems right to them. And that seems to be what happens for this guy named Elimelech. There was a famine, and what seemed right to him was to leave home, his home in Bethlehem, yes, that Bethlehem, and move to the country of Moab, taking his wife Naomi and his two sons with him. Now, what's not obvious immediately to you and me, but would have been super clear to anyone reading this story when it was originally written, was that the decision to move to Moab would have been ill-advised at best. Moab and Israel had a history, and it was rough. In Numbers 25, we read that the Moabites had led Israel into sexual immorality and pagan worship of their false gods. And so now here this family is leaving the promised land to go to this place, Moab, a country full of false gods and evil practices. But this is what seemed right to Elimelech, and he was free to do it. We then read by verse 3 of the first chapter that Elimelech dies. And in verse 4, the two sons marry Moabite women, one named Orpah 
and one named Ruth. Now, about 10 years later, the two sons also pass away. And it's in these opening movements that our story begins. These three widows now find themselves with decisions to make. Naomi decides she's returning to Israel and encourages her two daughters-in-law to stay in their homeland, perhaps remarry and begin new lives. She kisses them goodbye and they all break down and weep. And it's in this moment here that our character Ruth reveals who she is and shows us something about our own character as well. The first thing we see in this part of the book of Ruth is this. Ordinary faithfulness to God and to people can change the direction of our whole lives. Verse 14 says this, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and to turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Now, not only is that beautiful, beautiful, it's a really remarkable declaration on Ruth's part. She refuses Naomi's offer and insists on sticking with her and with her God, the God that she's come to know through Naomi's witness. This is a great reminder for all of us. We never know the effect sharing our faith can have when it's done in loving relationship with others. And clearly, Naomi had an impact on Ruth. Let's consider Naomi for just a moment. She stayed true to the one true God when the entire culture bowed down to a made-up God named Baal. She made the most of her situation by teaching Ruth about her God. And now, in this tragic, at this tragic point, she has the courage to return to her homeland. And then there's Ruth, an outsider, a Moabite of all people, who breaks cultural conventions <clears throat> to do right by Naomi. Ruth trusts in God and commits herself to his people. These are no small things that are happening here in the lives of these two women. It was a great step into the unknown for Ruth. She was heading to a people who would potentially see her as a foreigner, and she was facing a strong possibility of poverty and even deeper hardship. But Ruth had a conviction about what the right thing to do was. She loved her mother-in-law, and she was ready to identify as a follower of the God her mother-in-law followed and introduced her to. And Ruth learned about that God well, because her expression of steadfast love parallels God's expressions of steadfast love. I am with you through it all. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. How often do we hear God say this to his people in the scriptures? And Ruth seems to have learned that lesson of steadfast love. And she expresses it here beautifully to Naomi. God is looking for people who are faithful in what can seem like a faithless world. Amen? Ordinary faithfulness, as we see here demonstrated by Ruth, to God and to people can change the direction of our lives. Ruth's life is going to go in a whole new direction because she saw one right thing to do. Stick with Naomi. Stay true to her and to the one true God that she now has come to know. And that one faithful decision 
will change the rest of her life. The right thing to do is the right thing to do, no matter what it costs me or where it sends me. And Ruth is teaching us that. Verse 18 says, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. And the two of them continued and eventually they arrived in Bethlehem. The entire town was excited by their arrival that we read. And we are told it's a late spring, the beginning of the barley harvest, which will come into play in just a moment. This sets up our next scene. And again, it's a very ordinary scene. Ruth and Naomi now have to figure out how to feed and provide for themselves. And in their labor, God then meets them and provides for them through someone named Boaz. Ordinary faithfulness to God is changing the direction of of their lives. And now in this next scene, what we see is ordinary faithfulness can look like hard work and taking risks. We're now in Ruth chapter two. And it says, one day Ruth says to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Now what's going on here? They were poor. They were widows. They were in need. And this was a provision for the poor laid out in God's law to Israel. Farmers were directed to not harvest the edges of their fields or to go back and pick up what had maybe fallen off of a wagon or a cart or been dropped by a laborer. They weren't uh, they were told to not go back and get that so that those in need could come and gather something for themselves. Now, interestingly, this takes us right back to something we just spent the last two months talking about, and that is the order, the, the, the directive of God to, for his people to be generous and thoughtful to others. God has always made provision for the poor through the caring and generosity of his people. If I was a farmer back then, I could have decided to ignore God's directives and let what Jesus set up we should be on guard against, right? Do you remember this? Greed. I could have made sure that every kernel, every stalk, every head of grain, it was coming to me. It was on my field. It was mine. I could make sure that I got every single one and left nothing behind for the poor. Considered nothing of them. But that's not what God's law provides. And thankfully, that's not what Ruth finds. She's going to be provided for in a very generous and thoughtful way. Now, this move by Ruth is also not without risk, right? As a single woman and an immigrant whose people had a bad reputation, Ruth couldn't know how she might be treated or even abused. But she knew she needed to do something. She knew she needed to try. She put herself out there to do what was right and necessary. And the scriptures say, as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, a relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, those little words at the beginning of that phrase, as it happened, is more than what we might originally think. God met her faithfulness and diligence with his providence and guidance. This is a lesson for us. Ruth couldn't know where she might be going and whose field she would choose, but God did. God met her in her effort and directed her in ways she couldn't have ever predicted or made for herself. God has a way of steering our lives, not away from difficulty, not making us free from challenge, but he certainly has a way of steering our lives as we submit them to him toward his purposes. But such steering happens as we pedal, right? 
It's a lot easier to steer a bicycle when we're pedaling it, right? Not when we're standing still. In fact, it doesn't even make any sense. So as we're on in our lives and we're pedaling forward, we're doing what we see is right. What we can discern is good and true and necessary. God meets us in that effort and then begins to guide us in ways that otherwise would be very difficult for us to find or discern or enjoy. He meets Ruth where she is. She's taking risks and she's working hard. And he meets her right there and he guides her to where she needs to go. While she was there, it says, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem into his fields. He greets the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he says. The Lord bless you, they reply. And then Boaz asks his foreman, who is this? And the foreman replies, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been, at, she's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest, he said, in the shelter. So what happens? Boaz goes over and says to Ruth, listen, stay here with us when you gather grain. You don't need to go to any other fields. Ruth and Boaz meet in these fields where she is gathering. Boaz is presented in chapter two as, quote, a man of character. He honored the Lord. He cared for those in need. He followed the law. He was a man of purity. Even later when we read, he could have had opportunity to be otherwise. Throughout the story, Boaz is shown as a no-nonsense uh, man of character and responsibility. And in chapter 3, Ruth is also presented as a, quote, woman of character. Friends, this counts for a lot, maybe a lot more than we at first give ourselves uh, room to consider. And our world today can be more like the uh, greatness is defined by how popular we are, how famous we can get, or how much money we, we might earn, or on and on and on. Whatever measure we, we, you've come up with to make yourself feel inadequate, right? We all have those, don't we? Or am I the only one? We all have those, but they're all false because there's a measure that we could and should be using, and it's the one that matters to God. Are we people of character? Sometimes people of character that no one notices but God himself, but we know what it feels like to maintain our integrity. We know what it feels like to choose the right thing when we could have settled for the wrong thing. We know, and God knows, and it counts for a lot. In fact, everything that we make ordinary, simple choices each day that keep, us, that keep ourselves faithful to God. And in this story, these are ordinary people simple, of simple, solid character doing the common things of life. They were seeking stability and to earn a living. They wanted to be loved, perhaps raise a family, and to be part of a community, to take care of one another and treat others with respect. And we shouldn't underestimate or undervalue that. God certainly doesn't. Verse 10, it says that Ruth thanks Boaz warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asks, I'm only a foreigner. In other words, I know the reputation Moabites have and our history with your people is contentious. But it was the content of Ruth's character that mattered. And Boaz didn't care about those labels or those histories. He saw Ruth for who she was. Her faithfulness, even and especially in the ordinary, was what was making a mark on those around her. Yes, I know, Boaz replies, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother in your own land 
to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. And God indeed did. Through the kindness of Boaz, thanks to the faithfulness of Ruth, God was providing for her and for Naomi. Do the right thing. Take needed risks. This can be what ordinary faithfulness looks like. And then thirdly, what we see is ordinary faithfulness can bring unpredictable blessings. We see this as we move through the story of Ruth as well. Eventually, Ruth and Boaz marry. Before you think this is just a love story or a Hallmark Christmas movie, this is actually pretty radical that these two get together. He's Jewish. She's a Gentile. You and I on this side of the cross in the New Testament, we make much, and as we should, of the beauty of the gospel's power to tear down the walls that existed between these two ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles. And that thanks to the cross, um, it, the gospel forms a new people, the church, who can now transcend all the old labels and divisions and any new ones we concoct. But this was actually always part of God's plan. While this is completely fulfilled and, and made, made and displayed in all of its fullness in the, in the church here in the New Testament, we actually see plenty of this in seed thought in the Old Testament. It was actually always part of God's plan that at any point in Israel's history, non-Jewish people, Gentiles in other words, were always invited to recognize Yahweh, that's God's name that he gives himself in the Old Testament, that recognize him as the one true God and turn to him. Or, as Boaz puts it so beautifully, take refuge under his wings. And that's what Ruth has done. She has accepted that invitation. She's now part of the family of God. Ruth and Boaz marry and they have a son. Now this is pertinent because we're looking at a genealogy and a specific thread of God's overall story. So that's why this stands out. This is not a principle that blessing means children and no, bless, no children means no blessing. Everyone has their own unique story. The principle is that our ordinary everyday faithfulness can lead toward outcomes that we never could predict or produce on our own. In Ruth's story, it was a marriage and a son. Blessings and provision from God will look different in your story and in mine. Now we're in Ruth chapter 4, and we read, They've married, they have a son. The women of the town say to Naomi, first, praise the Lord. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son, this little baby that, that Naomi is holding, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Praise for Ruth, blessing for Naomi. Why? Because they refused to be faithless. And by their steady faithfulness, they obliterate the idea that you need notoriety to be used of God, that you need to be male to be used of God, or that you even have to be Jewish to be used of God. Everyone recognizes what their faithfulness has brought them, what it looks like, and they praise the Lord for it. Verse 16, Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, now at last, Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. 
God honors Ruth's integrity and diligence by doing something she could have never dreamt, weaving her into the big story of salvation. Who would have thought that Ruth would become great-grandmother to a king, king of Israel, a king after God's own heart, the scriptures say. So much so that the long-awaited Messiah, born in that same Bethlehem town, would be by prophecy a descendant of that King David, sometimes even called Jesus, son of David. Now the bravery and the majesty and the tragedy of David will be the subject of our sermon next week. But for today, let's sit with Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Ordinary people seeking to do right and live well in the context they found themselves in. When you put all this together, they're teaching us, really, that there's no such thing as ordinary faithfulness. Not really. Because no one's story is inconsequential. We ask ourselves, one way or another, does my story matter? Does my everyday decisions, do they make any difference? And when we reflect on a story like Ruth's, we see they do make a difference. They do matter. Ruth learned of the one true God. Maybe you have too. And she stayed loyal. She saw what the right thing to do was, and she did it. Hard work and real, real risk that it was. Her story of faithfulness got her written into the story of the Savior of the world. She becomes a widow and an immigrant and the great-grandmother of a future king and a progenitor of the Messiah. So, the book of Ruth, and I encourage you when you go home or sometime this week, feel free to read those four chapters tucked there in the, um, in the Old Testament. The book of Ruth helps us to see that our day-to-day -day lives play a part in God's work in the world. Like we've said, all the characters face life's normal challenges, death, moving, lack of financial resources, familial responsibilities, and they find that God is weaving a story of redemption out of all of it. None of them would have dreamt they would find themselves in the Holy Scriptures, talked about by us so many thousands of years later. Seeing that story included in the Holy Scriptures reminds us that some, what we can so easily forget, everyone's story matters, yours and mine. See, there was no categorical reason, no expectation that a Moabite widow would matter for much in the story of Israel's Messiah. But she did. She mattered greatly. And each of us in our everyday stories matter too. That there's virtue in steady obedience, in humble adherence to what's right and good, in simple, uncomplicated love, in faithfulness to God and others. This is the lesson Ruth leaves us with. And as we leave her, I picture her, after all she's been through, looking up from holding little Obed and looking us in the eye. Do right and do good, she tells us. However and wherever it is yours to do, it all counts, and it all counts for more than you think. And we would know that she couldn't be more correct because a good thousand years later, the voices of angels would one day echo off the hillsides of the town that she now calls home and announce that a Savior has been born, Christ the Lord. 
As we take the bread and the cup this morning, let's remember the goodness, the truth, the beauty of, that, of, of Christ the Lord, of that announcement, of that very, very good news. Every week we stop to do this. And when we take the bread, we're acknowledging what might seem ordinary because we do it every week, or what might, what might seem ordinary because it just is so small and so, so accessible, but it's not. It's not ordinary. It's far from that. It represents the biggest, greatest, deepest truth any of us will ever face, and that is that there's a God who knows us, who made us, who loves us, and who's done everything to restore a relationship with us. We celebrate that every week when we take the bread, which represents his body given for us. It's important that we recognize that just because we hold this in common doesn't make it common. It's extraordinary and it's beautiful, it's special, and it's ours. When we take the cup, we're acknowledging that the Son of God spilled his blood to buy our redemption, and now we have a relationship with him. Let's take and drink together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that even the ordinary becomes extraordinary when you're included, when you're involved. As we look at our lives, Lord, day to day, we recognize that we have decisions to make, not unlike Naomi, not unlike Ruth. Meet us, Lord, in the ordinary, everyday decisions that face us. Find us faithful. Help us, Holy Spirit, to choose paths of integrity and compassion and love and loyalty. When we're tempted or when we fall, Lord, help us to um, lean on you to receive your grace and to get back up. Guide our lives, Lord, knowing that you're weaving them into, part, in, into your large and lovely story, a story that changes the world, one day, one person, one heart at a time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.